Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jess Clark, and I'm one of the channel co-hosts. Today, I'm excited to speak with Dr. Charlotte Greenhalge, an Australian Research Council DECRA fellow and lecturer at Monash University. Her new book, Aging in 20th Century Britain, was published in 2018 by University of California Press as part of the Berkeley series in British Studies. In this new book, Greenhalgh offers a compelling portrait of the elderly, a segment of Britain's 20th century population that has, to date, received limited scholarly attention, mobilizing a range of sources from social science reports to women's magazines, from photographs to autobiographies. Greenhalgh successfully foregrounds experiences and meanings of old age. Her thoughtful analysis highlights subjects rich interior and emotional lives, often by focusing on moments when the elderly talked about issues beyond old age. At the same time, Greenhalgh reveals the elderly's periodic silencing by social investigators, policymakers, and younger Britons in the development of the very projects that were supposed to improve elderly lives. Charlotte, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so can you begin by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to write Aging in 20th Century Britain? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am an Australian Research Council um, DECRA fellow at Monash University in Melbourne currently. Um, and before I took up that fellowship, um, I'm from New Zealand. So I studied at the University of Auckland um, first and with in a really supportive and uh, wonderful department with people who inspired me um, to love history and also to be interested in um, postgraduate study overseas. And actually at, in Auckland, I was studying New Zealand history. So um, my project there was about love and courtship among young people uh, in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, and through that project, I really got into the history of emotions. I was very interested in the questions raised in that field. Um, and I loved the sense of fun and kind of glamour of looking at young people's lives in this time. And I looked partly at the influence of Hollywood movies on young couples, for example, and that was really fun. Um, and so then when I was looking at overseas postgraduate study and um, uh, I was interested in British history, partly because actually when we study New Zealand and Australian history, we read a lot of British history within our topics. Um, so I was already reading some wonderful social and cultural historians of modern Britain, like Matt Polbrook and Selena Todd and Claire Langhammer, um, to write New Zealand history. Um, and so I already knew that to work in modern British history would be a really uh, rewarding and invigorating field. Um, and as I was studying young people, I was thinking about the absence of older people um, in, in our histories um, as characters. I think they are very often left out. They don't seem perhaps to be at the centre of 
changes, cultural changes that we're interested in tracking. Um, and I wondered if I could sort of bring my interest in the history of emotions and that new field and the sort of excitement of studying young people's lives and apply it to this quite different field of the history of old age. Um, and even more specifically, I noticed not only are older people often missing from our histories, but even when they're there, their lives are told through stories about policy often. Um, and when historians do think about how do historical subjects talk about personal experiences of ageing, I thought historical subjects, they often sort of repeat tropes about growing older. They repeat stereotypes. They cite well-known authorities in old age. Um, and it didn't actually seem to reveal a kind of fully rounded uh, life and experience into later life. Um, and so in, in short, I sort of chose to study aging in 20th century Britain because it seemed important to me, but also this huge challenge to move into a new field of British history and at the same time to sort of flip and look at the complete other end of the life cycle um, and see if I could find the same kind of um, excitement and um, new kind of stories that I had discovered looking at young people. Excellent. So, so turning to the book itself, um, your opening chapter introduces readers um, to some of the major ideas about and approaches to the elderly from um, from the 1890s to the 1960s. And you get at this through attention to different social investigators um, who generated data that at times led to policy shifts. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this research that you gestured to in, in your opening comments and some of the key findings that came to shape responses to the elderly? Mm. Um, so I think the first chapter uh, on experts in the elderly shows how far I traveled from that earlier research, um, mm. from thinking about the history of emotions. And I ended up actually telling a story that did start at a point that was about expert knowledge and was about um, policy. Um, and that's because um, I was interested in telling the story of how people in the 20th century became particularly interested in old age as a category. Um, and as the subject of new forms of expert knowledge um, and public discussion and ultimately government intervention. So that story starts with, for example, the social surveys of Charles Booth at the beginning of the 20th century. And then I follow interest in the elderly and track the influence of psychology um, and especially of sociology and personal interviews with older people themselves. Um, and I was really fascinated by the idea of how the public came to expect that older people would be supported in particular ways and how governments came to accept roles intervening in the lives of everyday people, in part to solve those very social problems that social science experts and social researchers were revealing. Um, and because that story traces a really huge change in the material lives of older people, um, but also I think in their expectations about what life would be like as they lived to older ages. Um, and it also that first chapter sets up a series of themes about how older people have been understood in public. Um, and, and there's kind of a tension in this material 
um, when I think about a question that I bring to it in particular, which is to what extent can we see the lives of individuals being revealed through that work? Um, And the answer to that question is a mixed one, actually, because uh, researchers were increasingly interested in the 20th century in um, getting knowledge from individuals, individual Britons and individual older people themselves. Um, But at the same time, they are advocating interventions in the lives of social groups and they're advocating large-scale change. So although their research is zooming into um, the lives of individual people, they need to present their findings in a kind of package that can lead to policy change. And often what that means is that they're streamlining the kind of stories that they're telling. So researchers are making choices about what questions they ask, what examples they discuss, um, and that makes them their work more effective politically. And we can track the sort of policy changes, including the introduction of old age um, pensions that are affected by social research. Um, but at the same time, they um, leave out a lot of um, what older people are actually trying to tell them about their lives. Yeah, and I think you really masterfully get at that tension, I mean, throughout the book. But um, as you move into your second chapter, when you really hone in um, on the work of you know one specific um, investigator, sociologist Peter Townsend. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about him and his research um, and also his significance, I mean, both historically, but also for you and for this project of really interrogating those kind of gaps between personal testimonies and then, as you say, a sort of aggregate data Yes, so um, chapter two is called Talking with Peter Townsend. Um, And so um, Peter Townsend was a massively influential social researcher in many ways, and and several of his earlier projects looked at older people in particular. Um, And his methods by the mid-50s involve really open-ended conversation for hours on end um, with older people. And so my chapter two goes back to the archives and looks at his interview notes um, that he took following these interviews with older people. Um, And specifically here, I'm looking at his um, project, The Family Life of Older People, uh, in which he visited the homes of just over 200 um, people living in Bethnal Green in East London um, in 1954 and 1955. And this chapter really taps into... Um, something that excited me about the source base, which is the desire of older people to represent their own lives and to engage um, with researchers and tell their own stories. And so this is an experiment with this kind of particular technical, in this case, social scientific source, to see how far can we actually get at the thoughts and the experiences of the research subjects of the everyday people, um, even though we know that the material is being shaped Um, by the ideas and the priorities of the researchers too. And I think actually this history of old age is about that interplay um, between the the kind of changes that researchers and others are trying to achieve in the lives of older people, but also how older people respond to those opportunities and what that can tell us. And reading these interviews, what struck me was the degree to which what older people had to say often disrupted the expectations, the assumptions of the researchers 
and the kind of ideas that ultimately make it into the public realm about old age. Um, and that works out in a couple of different ways. So one example is to think about the theme of retirement. Um, so at this time in the mid-50s, it's a time of full employment. Retirement is being um, explained by experts as problematic, as threatening, including to the self-identity of older men. Um, and yet that's not the attitude that older men take when they're talking to Peter Townsend. So instead, um, these men are describing their hardworking character as a lifelong kind of attribute that is independent of the fact that they might have gone on light duties or they might have left work entirely. Um, and you can kind of tell this partly from the way that they show off a little bit in the interview and um, tell stories about their working lives and their achievements and show off kind of retirement certificates and make all of that very relevant um, to stories about their lives in the present. Um, and another way that I found, a thing that I found really touching um, in some of the interviews was the way that people talk about bereavement and death. So um, thinking about interviews with widows and widowers in particular. And there was actually a, a um, study done by Jeffrey Gora in 1965 of death, grief and mourning. Um, and in that study, he interviewed widows and widowers. And, um, and their stories really evoke the way that um, older people remained present um, in, in, in the memories of their families and particularly these kind of deep emotional bonds that could develop in marriage over time, not in all marriages, um, but, it, but certainly in plenty. Um, and so people in interviews described how they um, kept their home exactly the same following a death, um, how they kept people's personal possessions, maybe an item of clothing that really evoked their memory. And some interviewees even talk about how they have visions um, of people who have died um, and how they might hear their voice in the next room or um, they might kind of wake up feeling like they've seen their face and this is as if it's a pleasant dream. Um, and, and this kind of strain of conversation also disrupts ideas about old age that are circulating at the time, particularly the idea of what was called social death um, so the idea that as older people approached death, they actually lost social ties and they suffer this kind of increasing social isolation. And instead what we find is this kind of evidence of deep emotional bonds um, among some older people and that that even survives, you know, bereavement um, and survives after death. Um, and then another way that I think um, you get this kind of disruption of the research um, project is um, when interviewers, interviewees talk about their health. Um, and this works slightly differently when uh, we're rather than entirely contradicting researchers, interviewees confuse them. So Townsend says that he encounters people who he describes as almost dying on their feet, who insists that actually their health is fine. Um, and, and this confuses him. He doesn't know what to do with, with what they're telling him. It seems completely opposite to what, how he perceives um, their situation. And I think this can tell us quite a lot about the priorities of older people themselves um, because they tell stories about different kinds of illness in different ways. And the distinction is that 
if people can keep up their social roles, if they are somewhat mobile, they can keep their relationships alive, they can keep contributing, then they, they have this statement. They say, my health is fine. Um, or they say, I'm fine in myself. It's just my leg or a particular ailment that's bothering me. On the other hand, if there's um, if they have to withdraw, so there's a woman called Sarah Agomba who ends up collapsing in bed for 10 weeks and she tells that story very differently. So that's a dramatic um, kind of occurrence in the life of the family. She rehearses how all of the family is shocked um, that she's ended up in bed um, and that she can't do what she normally would do around the house. And that's despite the fact that um, when Townsend visits her, she can't actually climb the stairs to the flat. So she is living with limitations anyway. Um, but um, but there's a distinction for her um, that she, as long as she can continue contributing in the ways that she values, um, she says she's fine. And I think what all of this tells us together um, is that older people did have some kind of control over that research narrative. Um, they could tell their own stories, um, or even though that didn't always make it into the published text. Um, and an, a kind of interesting example that I came across was um, some of the um, stoic statements that older people make. So although I think we see this evidence of deep emotional bonds, there are also these stoic statements where people say, well, perhaps it was for the best um, and you need to move on. Um, and I thought about that that demonstrates a particular kind of character, but it also has a function in the interview where you can see that it actually shuts down the conversation so that people are able to share the stories that they're choosing to, even when they might confuse or contradict researchers, but also that they have this method of, of shutting down the conversation and kind of hiding more private moments. Um, and so I think that kind of tells us a little bit about uh, what we can ultimately get out of these social scientific sources, even though they are so shaped and written up by the researchers. That's fascinating. And so many of the details, I mean, in this chapter and across the book, um, just really speak to that. They're incredibly intimate and touching in your analysis you know, um, really gets to the core of, as you say, what they're doing to disrupt these these processes. Fascinating. Um, so a subsequent chapter moves from Townsend's interviews of subjects in their homes in East London to um, surveys of institutional settings um, or data gathered in institutional settings. So can you tell us a little bit about these institutions for the elderly and how the types of testimonies gathered there uh, shaped future policy? Mm. Yes, so um, chapter three then, which is called Into the Institution, is still dealing with Peter Townsend's research and his research notes, but um, this is quite a different project. So um, for, this, uh, um, for this chapter, we're looking at Peter, Peter Townsend's research of institutions, which is called The Last Refuge. Um, and so in this case, Townsend's actually working with four other researchers as well in a team. Um, and they visit 173 residential homes in 1958 and 1959. Um, and the reason that Townsend's doing it is that um, care for the aged ha is supposed to have transformed. Um, so new legislation came in in 1948 
Um, it's been 10 years. Um, and this legislation really expresses a whole lot of those ideas that came out of social research and fed into social welfare about how um, older people are going to be treated as full citizens, um, that they are going to have dignity um, and space for things like individuality, as well as being in a very egalitarian system. Um, so there's a whole lot of, you know, idealistic rhetoric around these changes. But Peter Townsend makes the point that nobody actually knows the extent to which um, institutions have actually changed. And, and you know, it turns out that that's a very relevant question because, in fact, there are many barriers to the change. Um, so there's shortages of budgets and of building supplies. People are trying to deliver care in institutions that are actually, were actually built, um, you know, under the poor law. Um, and in many ways, the kind of built environment enforces a kind of um, more demeaning experience and gets in the way of these ideas that uh, older people should be cared for in a more home-like um, environment. And then also, actually, the staff um, who are working in these institutions have often trained in those older um, kind of working environments too. And interestingly, um, training for care for the aged develops much more slowly than, for example, care for children does. Um, and so very often, you know, people haven't, um, the cases that the staff might not actually agree with those new political ideals that have been circulated anyway. And so um, the chapter is partly making the point that for many people, the wealth, the experiences of state welfare are actually made up of face-to-face -face interactions um, as, you know, as older people are living in, in these institutions full time. This is a particularly kind of intense experience of it for them. Um, and in fact, Townsend's research reveals a very uneven landscape of care. Um, so in part, this is because care for the elderly is delivered in public institutions, also in private institutions and voluntary institutions. Um, but actually, there's also evidence that managers and owners and workers treat older people differently, even within an institution, um, according to their physical health, also their mental health, which is um, described using this very kind of simplistic language of confusion, um, and also by social class. And so, um, and that, you know, on top of all of that, different workers, as well as different elderly people, don't necessarily agree about what care for the aged should actually look like um, in the welfare state. Um, and so this chapter is kind of extending um, this experiment with using these uh, this raw research data to see what we can draw out of it about older people's lives. But it's looking at a very different group. So rather than those people in Bethnal Green who lived at home um, and who during interviews were often surrounded by family members, um, in the, this is looking at older people in the institutions who are much less likely to have family involved in their lives um, or supporting them. Um, and it's a more complicated kind of research environment for Townsend because now he's going in um, and not just interviewing older people but also interviewing staff and uh, welfare officers. And there's kind of this tension between all of those groups about what conclusions he might be drawing um, about the treatment of older people. Um, 
And so in some cases, you can see that the social researchers are really going in and kind of fighting for the new ideals of care for the aged. Um, And so one example is that they're very concerned that staff and managers might be listening in to their interviewers, interviews with older people. So, you know, they might be compromising the kind of um, dignity and privacy um, of the aged. But it's not always that straightforward. Um, In other cases, the interviews themselves become and kind of replicate um, some of the demeaning practices of, of care for the aged. So Townsend talks about an example where the manager of a home has lined up for elderly people on a bench and told them to wait to be interviewed in order. And so now, you know, Townsend is dealing with the fact that the research is actually kind of replicating some of that powerlessness um, and inconvenience for older people. Um, And then there's kind of an added layer, which is actually Townsend engages differently with the older people than he does does with the workers um, and the managers and the welfare officers in terms of his research method. So he writes a questionnaire for the residents um, that he says takes about half an hour for them to complete. Um, And he goes to great effort to kind of get stories and collect stories from them. But on the other hand, when he's um, talking to the workers and he's talking to the people with power who are running the institution, he uses an open-ended kind of interview format and that encounter can take an hour or more. Um, And then staff show him around um, the institution. And so he actually has even more interactions um, with the workers than he does with the older people. Um, And he's quite judgmental of them. And um, researchers think that they're observing that just by being there, they're actually um, altering behaviours and routines in the institutions. Um, They think they kind of catch people out trying to perform egalitarian behaviours. In one case, um, that the owners of a home are having the macaroni cheese that the residents are having for lunch, they're sharing in it. Um, But researchers think they catch them out um, when they hear the daughter say, why aren't we having lamb chops like auntie, you know, as if that's what normally happens. Um, mm. But on the other hand, um, they, um, when you actually look at the published study, in many chapters, in most chapters, it ends up that the owners and the um, welfare officers are the ones who are quoted uh, more often and at greater length than the residents themselves. Um, And we have an interview with Peter Townsend, actually, in 1997, um, where in part he's reflecting on um, his kind of unease and unhappiness with the incompleteness of change in in care for the aged, even up to the 90s. Um, But he also says that he wished he'd spent more time just getting stories from those older people. Um, You know, he says at the time he wanted to understand the institution and how it operated And he kind of let this quite unique opportunity to actually collect life stories from this population. Um, He let it slip by a little bit. 
that's such an interesting um, part of the book when you reflect on that later interview with Townsend in the sense that he is now of the age that um, he's now the age of his previous subjects. And it's at that moment that he's um, invested in life stories. And it's such, it's such a fascinating moment and insight, as you say, into the research process and the way ideas about this have changed over time for him. Um, so after you focus on on data collection in domestic spaces and in welfare institutions, um, you go on to highlight um, alternate and additional processes of elderly self-fashioning and self-making. So can you tell us a little bit about your findings on beauty culture and autobiographical writing among the elderly in this period? Yeah. Um, so... Chapters four and five are my efforts to really go completely outside the um, kind of preoccupations of experts and of the welfare state um, in the mid-century. So chapter four looks at beauty and fashion culture. Um, And this was the first chapter that I wrote, and it's probably, you can probably tell it's the closest to the kind of thing I was talking about with younger people. Um, And... Um, the chapter has kind of maybe two driving aims. So one is to get across the extent to which I was struck um, that at mid-century, older men and women really fit right into beauty and fashion culture in a way that um, I don't, I think that the normal, um, the kind of common interpretation of the 60s as the time of freedom misses some of the emotional value of the um, more formal um, fashion culture of the 50s. Um, And the kind of high point of that is looking at Vogue magazine over these years. Um, And Vogue has a character called Mrs. Exeter, who um, we meet in Vogue in 1949, who is um, presented as an older woman. Um, So Vogue writes that she's approaching 60. And she gives advice about beauty and fashion um, to other older women. And she's absolutely glamorous. She's on the cover um, in November of 1950, looking stunning. Um, but the thing that interested me is, is that actually she, she com- is, complete, is a seamless fit with other women in vogue at the time. Um, so there is not this sharp distinction between younger and older models. Um, and for many of the younger models – it's not their age that is emphasized necessarily as the most attractive thing about them. Um, so, for example, Barbara Golan um, really dominated kind of fashion pages from the late 40s and into the 50s. And she's seen as a very glamorous um, and well-styled figure. Um, and those are really attributes that come with experience. You know, she's not seen as necessarily young and naive. Um, and in fact, Vogue has really regular features that they call clothes with no age tag. Um, and that those are ad- advertisements and they're also fashion spreads and they feature younger and older women wearing exactly the same clothes. Um, and so this, this kind of changes over time, um, obviously, especially into the 60s. Um, but it really struck me the, um, that the visibility of older people in that commercial culture and visual culture um, is something um, that, you know, we, we shouldn't miss the emotional significance of that. Um, and then when I looked at the writing of older men and women about their own grooming habits, 
I found that there were really strong connections between the kinds of um, things that were being valued in Vogue and what older people said themselves about their own sort of grooming routines and how they felt about their appearances. Um, So this, I was working with a slightly different group of older people here. So um, I was working with people who wrote for the social organisation Mass Observation. And so they wrote about about grooming in 1939 and in 1950 um, for Mass Observation. And these people, these older people, really agree with this idea that they are visible in the culture. Um, So one woman in her 60s says, you know, I know I need to make a pleasing picture for other people to look at. Um, So, and they're aware of kind of being observed. And then very often they feel good about the way that they can present themselves. Um, So people talk about their pride and their lovely white or gray hair. They talk about how that kind of brings out youthfulness um, and a whole range of other things so that, you know, how good their complexion is, that they have very elegant hands. Um, And so you can kind of see, I think, how this welcoming side of beauty and fashion culture um, is being appreciated and is bringing older people in. Um, and I think this can tell us some things about how people experience aging. So it's not that these writers are measuring themselves exactly against the kind of youthful faces of advertising. There's a kind of repeated notion in their writing that the way they want to look is, quote, just right. Um, so they're thinking about this as a scale in terms of how fashionable they should be, um, how closely they should emulate kind of public um, image of beauty. Um, and also, you know, they, they, they talk about how they adjust that relationship to beauty ideals over time. So I look at how women, older women talk about using makeup over, the, over time and how they're trying to achieve some kind of continuity um, of appearance. But it's not that they suddenly feel cut off um, from the ideals of the wider culture. And this to me really kind of tells us quite a lot about how aging is experienced across time and it's not it's not a sudden um, or traumatizing thing. It's something people are actually used to and kind of equipped um, with ways of dealing with. Um, and then so then thinking about autobiographies, I think, Um, This chapter where I worked with, I think, around 60 autobiographies written by older authors um, really made some of the same points, although using very different material that has different kinds of challenges. Um, And one of the specific challenges of using autobiographies um, is that they commonly have a focus on childhood and on youth and um, into early adulthood. Um, So... Um, So then how do we draw out stories about ageing from that material? Um, And there's kind of a parallel between the structure of autobiographies and the way that people talk about their memories working. So people say that memories of childhood are clear and within autobiographies they can understand a narrative frame for talking about growing up and learning um, and adventures and exploration in childhood but that framework doesn't work so well for thinking about later life. Um, and in fact, some autobiographers went into a lot of detail about how memory itself starts to work in a different way. Um, 
So, for example, the author Storm Jameson talks about how memories start to have this kind of looping circular quality. Um, So the past starts to intrude in the present and the narrative no longer seems so straightforward. And sometimes writers talk about how this reinforces kind of lifelong characteristics. So um, Storm says that she can hear the North Sea under the London traffic when she's in London um, in late life. And that kind of reinforces how from a child um, living by the sea, she, you know, was an adventurous and an independent spirit and that kind of guided her life. Um, But on the other hand, uh, it really confuses the kind of chronology. Um, So she talks about how visions of her mother who is dead will just kind of appear or she'll suddenly be transported back to the um, experience of being a young mother with a baby son. Um, and, um, and engaging with, with understanding then, you know, who you are and what your life means when the past and the present are becoming so mixed is a great challenge, I think, for writing. Um, but I think it can also tell us a lot about the way that people experience aging uh, the way that it happens over time and it's this constant kind of comparison and adjustment between the past and the present excellent so what are the most compelling elements of the book among many um is your um perceptive and um very thoughtful and deliberate engagement with your sources across all of the chapters. And it's something that I found you really invite the readers to, um, to take part in, to follow along with you as you're working with these sources in, in interesting new ways. And so you actively seek out elderly voices and agency, and sometimes in sources that frankly, you know, didn't always reflect or even respect their subjects' inner lives or needs. So can you tell us a little more about your process, like your research analytical process, and, um, you know, some of the challenges and and some of the strategies that you mobilize to try to get at um, the inner life of your elderly subjects? Mm. Yeah, well, um, it was certainly a process. Um, so I think that um, when I started the project, I had different kind of ideas about what kind of sources I would use. Um, And I guess I discovered that people don't often talk about the inner lives of the elderly for a good reason, which is that it's quite hard to access in the archives. Um, And it really surprised me that the place that I found it first and most consistently was in this social science um, sort of raw data. So in questionnaires and in interview um, interview notes. Um, and, um, and then I, and, but of course, then you have this moment of realization and you think, actually, this is, this is a story that can connect the broad changes that are happening, um, that we know about old age, that, you know, older people are being lifted out of kind of dire poverty to some extent and being treated in new ways as citizens. And that this can actually connect, to some of the more personal stories that I really want to uncover. Um, If we look at those sources as a conversation, you know, if we look at them always with that analytical kind of um, understanding that the researchers have power in the situation, that ultimately they're the ones shaping the records and archiving them and turning them into publications. Um, But that they also had reason to um, record 
kind of contradictory views. Um, so, you know, throughout the 20th century, it becomes more and more a mark of um, kind of intellectual uh, esteem that you gather your data directly from people. Um, and so there's a great kind of motivation to record directly what people are saying, um, although that, that method changes over time and it's they're not necessarily methods we would recognise or use today. Um, and also I think researchers kind of, you know, part of it is them writing notes to themselves about when the interview was difficult, you know, when interviewees were resisting them and why that might have been. Um, and so there's quite a lot of attraction to recording these moments of tension. Um, and, and I think if you start looking at that knowledge as kind of co-produced and you can start taking seriously the contributions of everyday people, um, of older people to these ideas, um, then I started to think, actually, they're trying to tell their stories in a whole range of ways um, across time. Um, and, um, and we can kind of think in a new way about what life was like for older people by thinking about to what degree are they actually listened to over time. Um, and that we have these measurements about what policy achieves in terms of material outcomes, but perhaps the ability to shape your life or to shape the representation of your life also can tell us something about um, what old age has been like. Um, and ultimately, I think, you know, the story that I'm telling is a very mixed one, that there are high ideals about accessing um, the stories of older people and using those to improve their lives but that also gets compromised at almost every point and in almost every example that I discuss um, sometimes by kind of you know economic forces um, and kind of practical barriers but it also actually comes into conflict with another ideal of the mid-century you know of egalitarian social change um, of large-scale change of improving lives for social groups so how can you actually you know, respect the um, what an individual is trying to tell you, which is often disrupting your research program and your hopes um, for policy at the same time as advancing the needs of the group, um, you know. And so it ends up being a really mixed kind of story. Um, and that's reflected in those later interviews with Peter Townsend where he's really, you know, in the 90s really worried about um, the kind of care that older people are getting in particular, um, Hmm. Excellent. So we are actually almost out of time. So I want to thank you again for joining us today and um, uh, sharing sharing your, your book with us. It's, it's such an important book and it is such um, a really compelling portrait of this important segment of the British population, which, as you, as you definitely show, hasn't received the attention from historians that it deserves. So um, thank you so much. Now, before we go, though, here at New Books Network, we um, typically end our discussions by asking, what's up next for you? Well, actually, um, my current project is more, even more explicitly engaging with um, this experience that I had working with the social science uh, material and records. Um, and so that project is called Researching Ourselves and Changing Society. And it's about social surveys in Australia and in New Zealand. Um, and so it's partly about me pushing further this question of 
what can we actually tell about everyday people and how they engage with social science, you know, on the ground. Um, and also with a range of questions that popped into my mind while I was doing this work because, because of my experience of working in New Zealand, British, and now Australian history, you know, these questions occurred to me. This social science method is supposed to be completely transportable and objective, you know, and yet it's often developed for, to address very specific social questions. So in Britain, for example, often questions about social class. Um, and then it's used by researchers in other places. And how does that actually work? Um, because there are different ideas about social class, for example, in Australia and in New Zealand. Um, and so my project now looks at social surveys that were done across the middle of the 20th century here um, and asks, you know, how people responded. And what did that mean about how people were imagining themselves on this side of the world? Excellent. We look forward to uh, reading more from the project. And so thanks again to you, Charlotte, and of course, to all of our listeners. Until thanks. next time. Thanks, Jess.